Well, good evening, everyone. Can I add to the welcome that uh, Philip already gave you? In fact, 76, Richard Dawkins, then Professor of Zoology at the University of Oxford, published his first book. One that was to sell over a million copies and provoke enormous debate. The book, a new edition of which came out in 1999, is, as many of you will know, entitled The Selfish Gene. And in it, Dawkins proposes that the gene is the fundamental unit of evolution and that genes act selfishly. That is, they promote, by their very nature, not by choice, their own interests in survival at the expense of other genes, so guaranteeing that the best and strongest genes survive. In the introduction on page 2, he says, I shall argue that a predominant quality to be expected in a successful gene is ruthless selfishness. However, what caused such controversy was that Dawkins extended his arguments from biology, zoology, into the areas of philosophy and morality. Here is a further quotation just on in page 64. It's what he says. We must expect lies and deceit and selfish exploitation of communication to arise whenever the interests of the genes of different individuals diverge. This will include individuals of the same species. As we shall see, we must even expect that children will deceive their parents, that husbands will cheat on wives, and that brother will lie to brother. Now, it is beyond my scope and certainly beyond my competence this evening to critique Dawkins' arguments. However, whether or not he is right about the causes, the record of the evidence from history and experience shows that the normal behaviour for human beings is to act selfishly. And nowhere is that record more starkly and honestly described than in the Bible, even though it casts the authors in often in a very poor light. And this evening we're going to study an incident from the life of Jesus, which demonstrates this very clearly. It occurs literally at the crossroads in the experience of Jesus. As he tells his chosen followers that they must take the road to the city of Jerusalem where a cross awaits him. And I want you to notice in particular their response and the agenda that lies behind their responses. So, if you have a Bible, you need to turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you really do need one. There are Bibles in the pews. If you can't see one, just uh, lean forward, pass them around, make sure everyone's got one. It's page 1015 if you have a pew Bible. Mark chapter 10. Incidentally and coincidentally, uh, this morning we looked at an incident recorded in Mark and Luke of a rich man who came to Jesus and Jesus told him that his wealth was a barrier and he left and went his own way, went away very sad. In fact, let's pick up the reading in verse 28 because Peter then says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, this is verse 29, chapter 10, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions 
and in the age to come eternal life. But many were first, will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Let's just pause for a moment and ask God to help us to understand it. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word and the record of those who wrote it. This incident we read cast the disciples in a very poor light. And yet we're also encouraged because we identify with them in our own human selfishness. And as we look at what our Saviour taught them and teaches us today, we pray that we'll understand it and put it into practice. And we ask therefore the help of your Holy Spirit to help me to speak clearly, help us to concentrate, to follow what is being said. And may your Holy Spirit apply it to our lives to our wills and what we decide and how we live. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a regular worshipper here, you'll know that our recently adopted vision statement is to impact our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power and message of Christ. And as we continue our evening series, in parallel with this, the conspicuous Christian... We come to another distinctive which should mark out those who are being transformed by the power and message of Christ. Our title this evening is Service in a World that Looks After Number One. And in the passage we read, Jesus very simply says that there are two contrasting ways to live. There is the way of the crowd, characterized by selfish ambition. In contrast, there is the way of the cross characterized by selfless sacrifice. And I simply want to look at each in turn and ask you, as I ask myself, which way am I following? Which way am I living? First of all then, the way of the crowd. 
The way of the crowd is to look after number one. To seek my own interests first and foremost. Not just above the interests of other people, but if necessary, at the expense of other people. And you see this very clearly in this incident. It is characterised by selfish ambition, seen first of all in the request of James and John. The brothers James and John, as you probably know, were among the first disciples that Jesus called. Unlike some of the others, they came from a reasonably wealthy family background, for we read that their father Zebedee employed hired men to work in the family fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. And James and John, along with Peter, seemed to belong to an inner circle of disciples that Jesus took into his deeper confidence from time to time. Maybe these factors have given them delusions of grandeur. But they'd also begin to wonder, as every follower of Jesus does wonder from time to time, if you never have, then you certainly will, is it really worth following Jesus? Is the cost too great? So Peter would remark to Jesus, Lord, he said, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus had said to them, I tell you the truth, Peter, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father, children, fields for me and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times more in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. And he said, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And so in this age to come, this glorious age when Christ comes into his kingdom, James and John are determined not to be the last, but to be the first. And so they get in first with their request. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's amazing how many people, even Christians, think that prayer is about getting God to do whatever you ask. In his account, very interestingly, Matthew tells us that they were accompanied by their mother as well which I think is rather amusing, but uh, take their mum along. And she's the one who actually articulates the request when Jesus says, well, what is it you want me to do? And she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. What she said was what they wanted, which is why Mark compresses the account a little. What they want is what we all want, to get the best seats. And if you're going to get the best seats, it means other people get lesser seats, obviously. We want to get in there first, to be first, to look after number one. After all, if we don't, who will? And if we don't, then someone else will get in there with their request first. And this we see as the story develops. Because following the request of the disciples, you get the reaction of the other ten disciples. They learn about what James and John have asked Jesus. When the ten heard about it, verse 41... They became indignant with James and John. Notice what they're not indignant about. They are not saying to James and John, how could you possibly ask such a thing when the Master has just told us he's about to suffer and die in Jerusalem? No, they're indignant because James and John got in there first before them. And that this is the case is seen by the fact that Jesus calls them together and he uses this opportunity to teach them something about the symptomatic attitudes that are evident in human society. The way that human beings use power to control other people to their own benefit. He describes these people as the rulers of the Gentiles. Look what he says. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's referring, of course, to the occupying Roman powers. 
who use and abuse their power for their own ends, to lord it over other people. Now the Romans, of course, were a conquering force. They had this incredible military machine and administration that followed along behind it, and the whole purpose of it was to subjugate other people under the rule of Rome. At the top of the tree on his throne sat Caesar. Kaiser, he was the Lord. But at every level down the system were lesser lords, each of whom was king in his own castle, lording it over others. So your goal in life was to climb up the ladder and get more people under your control rather than you being under other people's control. The test of how far you reached was how many people you could lord it over. Now, of course, the great desire of every Jew was to throw off the lordship of Rome, to set the people free from the shackles of this tyranny, to be free. But so often when liberated people are freed, they discover that sooner or later all they have done is to exchange one set of masters for another. Remember George Orwell's wonderful story, Animal Farm. You remember how the animals rise up in rebellion against their human masters. And they post these seven commandments. We're looking at the Ten Commandments in the morning. They had seven. The first one was, whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Commandment number two was, whatever goes upon four legs or wings, has wings, is a friend. But soon the pigs, of course, take over. And when the other animals complain, you remember the famous response. Well, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. There is no change except the name of the rulers. It is human nature to try and lord it over others. And Jesus tells his disciples, look, by your attitude, you're living just like other people. Just like the Romans do. Now, lording it over others is not just the way of Rome. It is the way of the world. It is the way of preferment. The way of power. Probably kids don't do this these days, but I remember growing up, you know, we as children, we used to play that game. We'd find a mound of thing and we'd all get to the top of it and say, I'm the king of the castle, you're a dirty rascal, and push everybody down to the bottom. You know, it's just practicing for when you get older, you know. Some, now, some of the older ones know I'm talking about. The younger ones are thinking, I, don't, I never did that in my computer games. Okay, but this is what... <laughs> this is what we did when we were growing up, you know, very fully functioning human beings. In his outstanding book, The Cross of Christ, John Stock comments, The world, and even the church, is full of Jameses and Johns. Go-getters, status-seekers, hungry for honour and prestige, measuring life by achievement, and everlastingly dreaming of success, they are aggressively ambitious for themselves. Yes, he is right, and I tell you he's right, even in the church. And if not the church, we have some other sphere of influence. There's at least somebody we can boss it over. Ranging from the place where we work and our colleagues to the place where we live and our families. The way of the crowd is the way of selfish ambition. Now in contrast, and what a contrast it is, Jesus offers and demonstrates another way, the way of the cross. The way of Christ is the way of the cross, characterized not by selfish ambition, but by selfless sacrifice. Having described the way the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over others, Jesus tells his disciples, and us if we would claim to be his disciples, that they must adopt a different role in society, not that of the Lord, but that of the servant. Look what he says, not so would you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. In the social hierarchy of first century Palestine, in fact of the whole of the Roman Empire, the household servant was at the bottom of the pile. At the beck and call, not only of the master of the house, but everyone else as well. Now Jesus says, your ambition should not be to get to the top table and sit next to the host on either side. No, your role is different. You're the guy who stands waiting at table, serving everybody else. And that kind of service, our Lord said, should be characteristic of every Christian community, of every church that bears the name of Christ, everyone serving one another. In the upside-down world of the kingdom of God, the only way up is down, and the only way to become great is to become a servant. It's an old joke that the slowest thing in the world is a group of Christians trying to get through a door. After you, no, after you, no, after you. The sad reality is that in many churches you're just as likely to be trampled in the crush in case of fire as anywhere else. But it should not be so. Am I a servant in my local church? Am I ready and willing to perform any task no matter how menial whether nobody else sees or knows that you actually do it? Or do I want a role where I'll be seen and appreciated? Here's a little test. I mention it to students who start to come back again. Visit as many churches as you can in the first term and then make your mind up where you're going to go. You're welcome here, but if you go elsewhere. But let me ask you a question as I ask to other people. What is the determining factor that decides whether you join the local church, this one and not that one, or whether you join the church at all? Do you ask, is this a church where I and my family will benefit? Or do you ask, is this a church where I can be of benefit? Are you looking to serve or to be served? We all want to be like those guys at Wimbledon. You have to be great with it to play at Wimbledon. You know, and as soon as you've finished every game, every two games, you go and sit down under that umbrella and this, this kid comes up you know, with, a, with a can of Coke or the isotonic drink or whatever it is and he brings you a towel every time you mop your brow between points. You know, Wonderful to be like that, wouldn't it? Who wants to be the kid who runs around the court like a scared rabbit? You know? <laughs> Another writer, Sinclair Ferguson, comments, In the kingdom of God... True greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of servants. It is seen not in how high up the ladder we've climbed, but how far down the ladder we have descended. And I tell you, Charlotte Chapel is the senior pastor, and that's not a status thing, it's a service thing. I tell you this, if we want to impact our community, our world, as a community of believers, distinctive, transformed by the power message of Christ, then one of the ways we do it is to become a community of servants, where in this church we all serve one another. That is what Jesus said. And notice he adds something else. It's easy to miss this. Not so with you, he says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to become first must be slave of all. If the servant in the house was at the bottom of the social pile, then the slave was outside of it altogether. He was regarded by his master as no more than a hoe or a horse, a tool at the bidding of his master. Yes, it was in the best interest of a master to look after your tools, but not all did. Uh, there's a famous story of one Roman senator 
who when his servant dropped and broke a glass, had him flung into the giant fish ponds he had where huge Murray eels were that ripped him to pieces. No, there wasn't a public inquiry or an investigation by the Commission for Human Rights. There was no such commission for slaves had no rights whatsoever. Now Jesus says, his followers, if we claim to be his followers, must become slaves, not even aspiring to be supervisors of slaves, but slaves of all. And once we understand this is not rhetoric, but reality, then the radical nature of what Jesus is saying should have an enormous impact on our lives to be servants of one another and slaves of all. Now, if you follow this, you think, what kind of deal is this? Why should I do that? Well, the answer is, secondly, that we are following the example of the Saviour. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for any. Now, to any knowledgeable Jew, the phrase Son of Man conjured up visions of glory. It's actually a phrase that comes from an Old Testament book called Daniel, chapter 7. And in it, there's one like the Son of Man who comes on the clouds with glory, is given authority over all people and nations. Now Jesus claims this title for himself, but he changes the role. He says the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve. He is a servant. And this servant, he says, will not only serve, but will suffer and will give his life as a ransom for many. Here the picture of the Son of Man is fused with another picture from the Hebrew Scriptures. The picture of the suffering servant of the Lord, described especially in the later chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied that the servant of the Lord would suffer and die, and that through his suffering he would justify many, bringing people into a right relationship with God. Jesus says he'll give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is a word used of paying a price to set someone free. A prisoner. And how does a released prisoner behave? How does he use his freedom? To serve one another and to become a slave of all, just like the master they follow, we follow, if we're really his disciples. We are free to serve, but free to suffer. You see, there is no shortcut to glory. The only way to glory is via the cross. Oh, James and John want the best seats in heaven. And Jesus said, listen, are you prepared to pay the price? Instead of a throne, he offers them a cup and a baptism. Jesus says, listen, you don't know what's entailed in your request. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? The cup is the cup of suffering. In Jesus' case, it's the cup of God's wrath poured out upon him. The baptism is to be totally immersed in that kind of life. A life of sacrificial service. To be submerged in suffering. And the brothers have no idea what's involved. They've got no doubts. Oh yes, we can, they say. Jesus tells them that one day they will understand and experience what he is talking about. But he cannot promise them what they request for it's not his to give. Verse 39, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. Be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. If you know the Bible, you'll know that James and John experienced what Jesus said. James was the first of the twelve apostles to be martyred for his faith, killed with the sword by Herod Antipas. You read that in Acts 12, I think it is the opening verses. 
John was the last to die, exiled for many lonely and terrible years to the prison island of Patmos. And what Jesus promised to them, he promises to all who follow him. He promises to us, yes, there is future glory in following Christ, but it is only by way of the cross. Writing to the Christians in Rome, the Apostle Paul reminds them of what it means to be God's children. We've sung about some of these amazing privileges and these wonderful songs this evening, what it means to be a child of God. The Spirit himself, this is Romans 8, 16, 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, we are heirs. We're going to inherit. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. But notice the if. If, indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If, indeed. Now, I have to tell you, there's a lot of Christianity that going around at the moment Suppose Christianity that tells you there is a shortcut to glory and you can dodge the cross, you can escape suffering and it will all be joy, joy, joy all the way in happiness. And what a terrible thing it is when you've been told that and then you begin to suffer for Christ. Some of you know about that. Some of you have suffered in your families. Some of you have suffered in your health. Some of you have found the cost of standing up and being a Christian, what it costs you in terms of relationships and friendships, even promotion at work, whatever it might be. When you live this kind of way, it is, as the old hymn says, it is the way the master treads, should not the servant tread it still. That's what you're to expect. It is normative for Christianity. Very strict, I was reading the other day the story, you remember the first great missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas took. And after they got to the end of the journey, they retraced their steps and went back to all the churches they'd planted on that journey. And what do you tell new Christians? What's the important bit you tell them? They said they told them that through much tribulation you must enter the kingdom of God. Very interesting to ask in our discipleship courses if at the top of our agenda we tell new Christians through much tribulation you'll enter the kingdom of God. Biblical Christianity. And I simply ask you this evening, are you following, am I following, the way of the crowd or the way of the cross? That's the challenge. Service in a world that looks out for number one. Let me say some words in conclusion. I will sing a, a song and then you can go and get your coffee and some of you get some cake as well. All right. um, I began with Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene. If we believe, as he does, that we are programmed to be selfish, then we have a problem, one that he himself admits. Here's what he writes in the introduction again. Be warned that if you wish, as I do, to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly towards a common good, you can expect little help from your biological nature. You just think about that for a minute. Why should I want to want to cooperate generously with anyone else? Surely my biological nature gives me an excuse to live selfishly. To trample on you as I go out the door and say, sorry, couldn't help it, it's my genes. An excuse for children to deceive their parents, for husbands to cheat on their wives, for brothers to lie to one another. I couldn't help it, it's my genes. So, I asked Richard Dawkins, as many people have, if we can expel little help from biological nature, what help is there? 
This is the best that Dawkins can offer. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. As a militant atheist, that is all Richard Dawkins can offer. In fact, he even says, when you act altruistically for the good of others, it's actually with your own self-interest in mind because you only help people of like genes as you so that you know you, your, your gene pool can pr- be promoted at the expense of other people. Pretty depressing stuff. So, here's the wonderful thing. The history of the Church of Jesus Christ is a history of people who laid down their lives sacrificially for others with no benefit to themselves whatsoever. So let me tell you a story. You may know, but many of you probably won't know. And I think it's one of the most incredible stories from church history. Okay, this is not a boring story. This is a real story, right? From the 18th century. In August 1722, a group of Moravian refugees asked young Count Zinzendorf if they could settle on his village, settle a village on his estate in Germany. As a teenager, young Nicholas, Count Zinzendorf, had formed what he called the Order of the Grain of Mustard Seed. He was a committed Christian. He got a number of friends together, all of them from families of great wealth and influence. And one of the vows they made was to be kind to one another. So when these refugees came and said, can we settle on your estate with nowhere to live? They didn't deport them like we would tend to do these days, sadly. Count Zindendorf allowed them to settle on his estate. And they planted a village, a little town. It was called Herrenhut, which means the Lord's Watch. Unfortunately, and this is the reality of the story, once they got settled, they all started falling out with one another. They bickered and fought. And the count, the young count, he was about 20, 22 at this time, he watched it for five years very patiently, and in the end he'd had enough. So he stepped in. He instituted daily Bible studies, settled disputes, and at one point brought everyone together to confess and apologize for the way that they'd behaved towards one another. And they signed and made what they called a brotherly agreement which set out how Christians were supposed to live and treat one another. Everyone in the community had to sign this agreement and its principles. And this actually set the stage for one of the most incredible movements in modern church history. That's the first part, becoming servants one to another, preferring one another. Here's the second point. After they met on one occasion in August... The Holy Spirit came upon them with such power, he produced a burning desire to share the gospel of Jesus beyond the community with the whole world. And so was born a missionary movement, the Moravian missionary movement, that actually touched the whole world. John Wesley was deeply influenced by them, and they were a great factor in him becoming a Christian. William Carey is often called the father of modern missions. If you read what Kerry said, he expressed his indebtedness to the Moravians who came first. They not only became servants of one another, they became slaves. They were even prepared literally to be slaves. Two of them, young men, a carpenter named Leonard Dober and a potter named David Nitchman, believed that God was calling them to be missionaries to the slaves in the West Indies working on the plantations. They were told they would be barred from the territory. The only way they could gain entry, it was only for slaves. And they said, we are willing to sell ourselves into slavery in order to reach the slaves in the West Indies. 
and they became the founders of Christian work among the West Indian slaves. For 50 years, the Moravian brethren laboured in the West Indies without any aid or support from any other church or denomination. If you read the story, it's an incredible story of church history. They sent out the first batch of people, I think it was just over 20 people. Over half of them died in the first nine months. And others stepped into the breach to continue the work. They established churches in St. Thomas, in St. Croix, in St. John's, in Jamaica, in Antigua, in Barbados, in St. Kitts. They had 13,000 baptised converts before any other church arrived on the scene. Now you may say, oh, those kind of things happened in the past. But they should not be limited to the past. John Stott quotes this example in his book and he says, Where is the spirit of adventure? The uncalculating solidarity with the underprivileged. Where are the Christians who are prepared to put service before security, compassion before comfort, hardship before ease, thousands of pioneer Christian tasks, are waiting to be done, which challenge our complacency and which call for risk. You see, only the power and message of Christ can make a distinctive community of people who are characterised not by selfishness, but by service. People who make an impact on our world. The greatest challenge to the theories of Richard Dawkins and those many who believe him is not some philosophical argument, it is when they actually see Christians living what they believe. Otherwise, it's all just hollow talk. Change from selfish gene people who look out for number one to selfless servants and slaves who lay down their lives for other. So how do you begin to make an impact? Well, we, we begin, as this story began, with our own personal response. And here I finish. The story of the Moravians began with Nicholas, this young Count Zindendorf. He was a member of one of the wealthiest families in Germany. And during his grand tour, you know in those days it was a rite of passage for young noblemen to tour Europe and visit all the, you know, the culture and the high art and everything. He visited an art museum in Dusseldorf. He saw a painting by Domenico Fetti entitled Echo Homo, Echi Homo, Behold the Man. It portrayed the crucified Christ and underneath it was an inscription in Latin. Here's the translation for those who didn't read Latin. This I have done for you. Now, what will you do for me? And Zindendorf, already a Christian, responded that day. That's what he said. I have lived him for a long time, but I have never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. And the rest, as they say, is history. God's history. Could be ours. Let's pray.